This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the Olive Podcast. I'm Janine, Olive's deputy editor and podcast host, and each episode I'll be catching up with chefs, cookery writers, and characters from the food scene in Britain and beyond. Join us each week to expand your food knowledge as our guests share 10 things we need to know about the specialist subject. And do listen out for our effortless bonus episodes where they also reveal their top cooking cheats, hacks and shortcuts. Okay, I'm delighted to welcome Gerd Loyal back to the podcast today. Gerd is a food writer, future food consultant and Olive's regular trends columnist. He also curates the online platform Mother Tongue, celebrating food stories of migration and race and is currently finishing his first book, Exploring Second Generation Indian Identity Through Food, coming out early next year. Welcome, Good. How are you? I'm really well. How are you? Good. It's lovely to see you again. Thanks. Great um, to be back. So today we're going to discover or rediscover 10 classic food writers that might not be on everyone's radar. So there might be people listeners have heard of, but don't know too much about. And hopefully by the end of the podcast, we'll all have learned something new. I hope so. So let's dive straight in with number one and um, Marcella Hazan, who might be a bit better known in the US than here, yeah. but she's definitely a name out there, isn't she? She is. She's So Marcella Hazan was um, is sort of widely regarded to be America's foremost teacher on Italian cooking. She was born in 1924 in Emilia Romana, which is very much the sort of foodie part uh, of Italy. Um, But then she actually moved to New York with her husband. And it's here that her sort of foodie sort of life really kind of kicked off. She very famously actually started going to a Chinese cooking class when she was... Uh, when she arrived in New York with her husband. And the story is that the teacher actually stopped going in. (laughs) So the people in the class said, well, why don't you teach us Italian food? (laughs) And so she did, which I think is just amazing. (laughs) And I think, you know, what a way to start your career in food to have to suddenly be teaching a class. So this was sort of how she sort of began her, uh, her cookie career. And then she started teaching these weekly classes at home which actually caught the attention of someone called Craig Claiborne and someone called Judith Jones. Now, these are sort of quite big names in the sort of food editing, sort of food writing world back in that time. Um, And actually, they're the kind of people that that, that Judith Jones in particular catapulted people like Julia Child and James Beard onto the spotlight. So she really sort of was the sort of uh, the doyenne of Italian food. Few more things about her. So she really is all about Italian home cooking. That's kind of the, the key sort of principle. Um, and when we say home cooking, I mean like manually done home cooking. Right. She's very much hands on. <laughs> hands on. No, not Has too to much machinery. Much. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, it's all about the ingredients, using them properly. Interestingly, she's very much regarded as the person who brought balsamic vinegar to the world. Because <laughs> okay, I thought that was Delia Smith. <laughs> no, it was Marcella Hazard. Delia stole it from uh, Marcella. So it's interesting because she, um, she, I suppose she sort of got people more widely thinking and using balsamic vinegar, but then actually felt it went too far. Because I guess there was a point in the 90s where a balsamic drizzle was oh on everything. Oh my God, yeah. Or a glaze, a balsamic glaze. You just couldn't move for them, you could you? It's like truffle oil now. Exactly. Balsamic was the truffle oil. I don't know, maybe the, maybe the balsamic glaze is due, is due a comeback. Yeah. I'm not sure. Um, 
But I, I guess other things around sort of, you know, I, I guess the thing with Balsamic Vinegar was for her, it was about this being this kind of expression of modern and that part of Italy and this sort of regionality and seasonality, again, are big themes. Um, a few things to, to sort of dive into, if, if, if that is something that people are interested in, is that there's a great book by her, which is sort of her classic text, which is the classic Italian cookbook uh, that was originally published in 1973. Uh, and then there's another one which is called More Classic Italian Cooking. Um, and a few recipes. She actually has a very, very famous tomato sauce with I onion and butter. I know that one. And I, I saw like Food 52 called it the most famous tomato sauce on the internet. I and think, I saw it, it, I think it was during lockdown. It yeah. popped up on Instagram yeah. everywhere. I think it's one of those recipes that's just riffed on so much. Yeah. And is it's almost taken its own kind of iconic status. And there's actually a new book called Little Fires by a writer called Rebecca May Johnson. And the book is in many ways an ode to this one recipe. I mean, that's how wow. incredible it is. And it's, I mean, it's a very simple recipe, but it's... It's just done really well. And actually what she is really all about is taking time. Yeah. Um, it's as much about the process of what you do with the onions and the garlic and the butter as it is sort of, you know, the actual the, the end result effective is from the process. Um, it is just basically tomatoes, butter in a pan, and then you put a whole half onion yeah, in the pan do. and simmer it Absolutely. for 40 minutes, yes. an hour. Yeah. And then some people chuck the onion, but these days we don't do that. No. Um, or you can blend the onion in. But apparently, and, and I think on her recipe, she says you have to wait until the fat separates from yes. the, which I think happens in a lot of Indian cooking as well. It does. When, when, you, you see when the oil fat, separates, that's yeah, the point. That's when it's done. Yes. Um, but yeah, that, that just went wild. And I have made it. It's, it is delicious. It's such a great and recipe. so simple that you can't believe that it's no. got so much flavor. And actually lots of London restaurants. I mean, the River Cafe has an iconic tomato sauce and they are always talking about the fact that it's based on the Marshall Hassan recipe. Um, other interesting recipes from her, um, there's a great recipe that I've done, which is sautéed Swiss chard stalks with olive oil, garlic and parsley. She also does a char-grilled chicken with uh, that's marinated in pepper oil and lemon wow which is just wonderful just really simple again really simple but just again. great quality um, ingredients but i think another thing that's great about her she's just a wonderful writer i mean just a little quote from her so she uh, famously said that not everyone in italy may know how to cook but nearly every italian knows how to eat eating in italy is one more manifestation of the italian's age-old gift of making art out of life amazing amazing yeah that's exactly what you want to hear from your from food an, From an Italian food writer, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, much Hazan, that's number one. Lovely. And on to another American writer who I, I hadn't heard of, confess, um, Edna Lewis, who is responsible for introducing the cooking of the South to a generation, I believe. Yeah, absolutely. So Edna Lewis was an, an incredible, incredible figure in food. She was an African-American food writer who was born in 1916. Um, she actually grew up in a place called Freetown, um, Orange County, Virginia, which was a really rural part um, of the American South, but it was actually a town that was emancipated from slavery by her grandfather. Um, and she talks a lot about this sort of community of 11 families who all lived really closely together. And she was actually really connected with um, with Freetown for her whole life. And she was often back for sort of feasts and, um, feasts and celebrations. She, at the age of 14, became a domestic servant where she learned a lot about cooking and actually at 19 moved to New York, which is where her career really, really kicked off. She did all sorts of stuff kind of in the food world. Um, she actually started a restaurant in, in the 1940s, which was called Cafe Nicholson, which became sort of like the writer's hangout of that time. So people like Truman Capote, Tennessee Williams, and even Salvador Dali was like hanging out. I can't out. believe they all just went Isn't to that insane? Just completely no, those incredible. Those lot around the table. Just so great. Well, imagine what they were talking about. <laughs> but they were all eating Edna's food. That's what yeah. we know. Um, 
Interestingly, what her writing career began sort of in her 40s, where she once sort of snipped on some snow and found herself bedbound and decided that she had to do something. And <laughs> it culminated in her first book, which is the Edna Lewis cookbook. Um, and that name again that we mentioned before, Judith Jones, yeah. then sort of discovered her, um, which led to her, her sort of her big tome, which is the, the Taste of Country Cooking, which was first published in 1976. Some of her themes, so she really is seen as the figure that gave Southern American cooking its identity. She's always about local, she's about local, healthy, fresh, seasonal and pesticide-free cooking. I mean, she was a, sort of one of the original pioneers of, I guess, organic cooking and really tasting the land and understanding the land yeah. and that kind of relationship, which I think we sort of take for granted now, but it wasn't, especially in, in that kind of era where packaged foods and ready yeah, meals. Yeah, were really and coming out. They were yeah, really yeah. coming out, absolutely. And she really fought against that. Um, interestingly, she also was quite suspicious of ovens, <laughs> which okay. I think is really interesting. I think she just felt that there were, there were sort of traditional ways of, of cooking and baking even yeah. that that just were, were better in terms of the flavour, the, the produce, of, and just giving you that connection to the land. I guess like fire baking and pots and things like that, yeah. One of the things she talks about a lot is her mum's ash cakes, which I'd never heard of an ash cake before. Um, So it's a a cake that's actually baked in the embers of a fire. So I just think that's an incredible image to be baking a cake in the embers of a fire. So yeah, that's kind of what she's about. It's all about sort of being natural, raw, wild, um, but deeply connected to the land. Some of her recipes, which are just always sound delicious and so sort of homely and just again have this lovely rural sort of sentimentality to them so she has a sauteed chicken with hominy casserole um so hominy is a sort of corn grits yeah. um which is really delicious buttermilk cookies fried apple pies yeah. <laughs> um i love the sound of this recipe i've never actually made it it's sweet potato casserole with hot buttered beets oh wow how that delicious does, does that sound um and then her rhubarb pie is very famous and her sort of pan braised spare ribs are also very famous Her writing is, again, also just really lovely, really lyrical, really beautiful. There's one little quote that I absolutely love, which I think just sort of exemplifies her connection to the land. Um, She was sort of famously talking about nose-to-tail eating, particularly um, for um, pigs. And she says, you can use every part of the pig apart from the oink. Amazing. (laughs) I love that. And I'm sure I've heard that, like... um paraphrased by other people as well or definitely people so. have used I that since I think so since, it's Edna sure. Lewis it is Edna Lewis she um, sounds great definitely great. one to discover the next one MFK Fisher was actually described by W.H. Auden as one of America's greatest ever writers not food writers yeah. by the way but writers which Absolutely. is an amazing accolade isn't it I mean MFK Fisher now is sort of a cult icon yeah. an iconic sort of figure in as you say not just food writing but also writing and she's sort of this figure that's sort of shrouded in sort of a little bit of mystery, but is really famous, really, for having this sort of cross-genre writing that's part memoir, part cookbook. It's very narrative. It's very sensual. Um, She's really all about pleasures of the table. Um, And she sort of takes you into these stories that are very linked to memory, very linked to her sort of own life. Um, She was born in 1908, in Michigan, but actually spent a lot of time in Whittier, California. But sort of was married, I think, three times, had two children from two different men, lived in Dijon. She set up a sort of art colony in Switzerland. She did all (laughs) sorts of stuff. Um, 
But it was kind of in the 1930s when she moved back to California that she started writing about food um, for people like The New Yorker, Vogue, uh, Gourmet. And again, she was very much in this circle of people like Julia Child, James Beard yeah. and Judith Jones kind of um, again. What people really tend to connect to is that she sort of she sort of often talks about the fact that she's writing about food as a source of sort of spiritual nourishment. Mm -hmm. So she's not just talking about hunger. She's actually talking about life more broadly. So there's a, there's a lot to read into with her. And yeah. I think this is what people that love her really love is that you can read it on so many levels. Um, the other interesting thing about her is actually a lot of people recount that she wasn't actually that good a cook. <laughs> so, and Julia Child often recounts the fact that if you, yeah. she ever went to MFK Fisher's house, she would have to take dinner because it just wasn't going to so be she could talk. Good. She could talk she a good dinner, but she couldn't. Apparently wasn't that great a cook. Um, some really famous books by her. So her first book was called Serve It Forth, which is a book of food essays, which are just really wonderful to read. Um, there's a book called Consider the Oyster, which is all about sort of a celebration of the oyster. And actually, there's a book which is called How to Cook a Wolf, which is having a real resurgence at the moment. Um, it's a book that was written about eating in wartime and about this idea that even during sort of rationing and wartime, you can still get spiritually nourished through yeah. food and eating. And she really wanted you to sort of be immersed in the pleasure of eating, even through rationing. And it's really interesting, I think, sort of with the sort of cost of living crisis and yeah. everything that's going on in the world right now, people are really rediscovering this book. Because it was talking about not denying ourselves, but Absolutely. trying to make the best of, you know, what you have Absolutely. and trying to take it to the best possible Absolutely. conclusion, Absolutely. which I think is, you know, yeah. great. It's really interesting. I mean, it's really stood the test of time and it's actually amazing how relevant it is today. Um, the book that people tend to fall in love with is called The Gastronomical Me, which was her sort of autobiographical memoir. And there's a very sort of famous quote from that, which is where she sort of says, um, I won't read it exactly, but she sort of says, We've got three basic needs, which are food, security, and love. And she sort of says, I write about all of them. But when I'm writing about food, I'm really writing about love. Oh. And I'm really writing about hunger. And I'm actually writing about security. So it's this whole idea all of food. Completely. And it's just so lyrically and beautifully told. And she's just one of these figures that people, if you, once you dive into MFK yeah. Fisher, you just, you can't escape. Oh. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Okay, next, someone that I grew up watching on the TV when I was little, the lovely Ken Hom. The amazing Ken Hom OBE. <laughs> Ken Hom indeed. OBE, um, to give him his full title. He, he, I mean, he is just, again, another iconic figure. Very much regarded as the chef that, that brought Chinese food to a British yeah. audience and indeed to actually more of a sort of global audience as well. He was actually grew up and born in Chicago. Um, and interestingly, I didn't know this until recently, he didn't speak English until he was six years old. Um, which is incredible because his writing is just some of the most beautiful English I yeah. think I've sort of ever read. Um, he did all sorts of things in his career. He was a teacher at the California Culinary Academy. Um, and interestingly, he was also a real pioneer of vegetable-based cooking, um, as a lot of Chinese food tends to be very vegetable-forward with meat used more yeah. as a seasoning. So he was kind of quite a pioneer in that sort of Californian veg-forward sort of approach to cooking. He came to the UK in 1971 um, after sort of being encouraged by Madda Jaffrey, another yeah. iconic figure. And really, it all just kicked off from there. So his first show, which was Ken Hom's Chinese Cookery, was uh, came out in 1984. And the book that accompanied the series has sold 1.5 million copies. That's crazy. Isn't that incredible? Yeah. 
I said, that is amazing. <laughs> it's completely amazing. But I do remember at the time, you know, like I was very small. I was very small, practically just born. Not really. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, he was everywhere on totally, TV. Ken, Ken Hobbs, Hot Walk, yes, I remember. absolutely. Because he did introduce that walk He really did. UK, he did. I mean, he did all sorts of stuff. You know, he... He was all about sort of bringing the true authenticity of Chinese yeah. cuisine to the West. But his thing was he wanted to make it accessible yeah. to a Western audience. So it wasn't dumbed down and it certainly wasn't in any way diluted. But what he did do was sort of appreciate the sort of limitations of a sort of Western home kitchen. Yeah. Um, but it was what cooking that he you know, really yeah. sort of brought sort of uh, to the fore. What was also interesting is, though, is because he was born um, in Chicago, he um, was Chinese-American he also spent a lot of his time going back to China. Well, going to China, in fact, for the first time and then going back to China often and discovering, I suppose, his own, the cuisine of his own heritage, but yeah. from that sort of American end. So what's really incredible about his writing, and actually the one book I'd really recommend people to pick up uh, if they can find it, is The Taste of China, which yeah. was written in 1990. The thing that's amazing about it is that you get this sense of Ken himself discovering, discovering his yeah. own Chinese cuisine yeah. for the first time and, and, you know, all of the sort of multitudes of it, but feeling this deep emotional connection to it. And I'll read you a little line, actually, from yeah. the introduction to that. He sort of writes, You can go home again. The question is, what or where is home? To a Chinese-American or any overseas Chinese, emotional ambiguities are built into this answer. Yeah, It's a really interesting sort of sense of self-discovery and... Just reading that passage alone, you know, I think he's often appreciated as sort of a TV chef, but I think he's someone that should be really thought of as a writer as well, because he's an extraordinary writer. Well, a great communicator as Completely. well, like you said, because you wouldn't have that career if you hadn't been able to take Completely. what you knew and then communicate it to, to an audience who you bring in possibly for the first time, Chinese cooking. So, yeah. yeah. Another thing that's interesting is that he wrote an autobiography in 2016 which is called My Stir-Fried Life. And you actually also realise quite how fabulous a life he's yeah. had. <laughs> he today actually splits his time between Paris and Thailand, which I just think is so glamorous. Yeah. Um, as well as being a regular on UK TV. So yeah, Ken Harm, just absolutely. Um, track down his books. And actually, an interesting thing I wanted to sort of say is um, with all of these writers, whilst there are certain online websites that have a lot of books, I would really encourage people to go into their local charity shops because... Um, secondhand bookshops Secondhand bookshops as well. Yeah. This is where these sorts of treasures yeah. are absolutely found. Um, often quite battered, often a little bit sort of sore splattered, but they have a sense of being loved. And I actually tracked down the, the, the taste of China um, in a charity shop um, in Kentish Town and I love it so much yeah. so Ken Hom what an amazing character and another amazing character <laughs> we need to talk about is Fanny Craddock I love the fact that she's on your list uh, because she often gets talked about in you know quite a sort of derogatory way yeah. but actually you know she was there's so much to love about there her. There is so much. I mean, I could talk about Fanny Craddock just for an entire <laughs> podcast, to be honest. I mean, if I could, she'd be my one to ten. It would be Fanny Craddock. So she is this just iconic figure within food who really is, in in Britain in particular, she is the first TV chef. Yeah. I mean, there would be no Delia or Nigella or Gordon Ramsay or Jamie Oliver without Fanny Craddock. She really is sort of the original pioneer. She had a really interesting life. Um, she was born in 1909 in London and interestingly sort of has a life that's sort of shrouded in mystery and scandal and sort of... There's a lot that we don't know about her. Yeah. Um, but she's sort of this character that's... 
She's, like she's, self- one of, she's sort of almost created this character. Yeah, she of Fanny made Paddock. herself, didn't she? Because that, that's not even her real name. No, no. no. And <laughs> what's interesting is that as kind of her life went on, the line between this character that she created and yeah. who she actually was is so blurred that often people don't even know if there is a line there. Yeah. She just became this character. <laughs> um, this you know, just completely larger than life sort of um, personality. A few sort of things and general themes around Fanny Craddock. I mean, she has an absolute reverence for Escoffier and high French cooking. And there is this sort of very 60s and 70s kind of keeping up appearances vibe <laughs> to everything that she does. It's all about entertaining. It's all about impressing the neighbours. It's all about elevating yourself up. Um, she's very much about things like garnishes yeah. and sort of little twills and little sort of fancy things. I mean, if anyone's ever seen the uh, the Fanny Credit Christmas show, yeah. which is just iconic. I mean, the amount of glass, the number of glassy cherries and sort of crystallized angelica and kind of green mashed potatoes that are piped onto everything. I was everything. going to say the mashed potatoes because actually the, the Christmas shows are available on iPlayer, yeah, on BBC iPlayer. Yeah. So, so you can go and watch them and I urge anyone... If, it, seriously, lose yourself in five Completely. episodes of Fanny Craddock's Christmas <laughs> while she pipes bright green potatoes around a giant turkey. <laughs> it's genius. It's, it's completely brilliant. But the interesting thing, though, is that she isn't often thought about as a writer. Yeah. And um, she did write a lot of books. And actually, all of the TV programs often refer to the fact that it's in the pamphlet. And yeah. actually, sort of, she'd become almost known for this catchphrase of it's in the pamphlet. Um but she wrote some really interesting books. Um, ones that I'd really recommend people looking out for are Home Cooking with Fanny Craddock. Yeah. One of the things I love about it is firstly how retro some of the recipes are. Yeah. So there is a recipe for sausages which never split. <laughs> there's a sort of orange rice pudding. There's a spaghetti pie, which just is I wonderfully love, yeah, all 60s. All these things, please. <laughs> um, but the other thing that's amazing about it is there's an illustrated... Um, diagram of how to make a water lily napkin. We all need that. <laughs> Come on, good. <laughs> I mean, balsamic drizzles and water lily napkins are definitely due yeah, a comeback. Yeah, <laughs> I'm here for that. Um, another one of her brilliant books is um, called A Cook's Essential Alphabet, which she actually wrote with her husband, Johnny Craddock, yeah. who himself was quite an interesting figure that's often kind of silently in the background of yeah. all her TV shows. Um and actually, for me, this is the book where you get the sort of strict, matronly, abrupt, very obscure and very funny Fanny Craddock coming through. So a few things that I sort of uh, just picked out from that book. So it's very much an alphabet and yeah. it has, has lots of different things. So under L, there is lettuces. And it begins, and this is written in bold, not much of it is in bold. It says, lettuces must never be cut with a knife. What do you cut them with? <laughs> Does she not tell you? She insists that they're torn. Okay. They must I'll, never be cut with a knife. Another one that she proudly claims is that pork fat can be delicious nibbles to serve at a drinks party, <laughs> which just puts it out there. And then another one in which, you know, just is, it's almost like you're being told off. Meringues hate being stored in a tin. So, I mean, she really is very stern about these yeah. things. But the thing that's amazing about it is she does explain why. Yeah. Um, another one that I think is quite funny, and this is the last one, is that she sort of talks about champagne and she sort of says, popular to, to popular misconception, a champagne cork should never be popped with a lamb bang. It's, the job should be done silently. So <laughs> That's you told. Re- that's me told, exactly. <laughs> but you really get that through her writing. Yeah. And what I love is that it's just... 
such a joyful read. And I think yeah. anyone that knows her and has seen the TV shows yeah, yeah. should dive into the books yeah. because they give you a whole different dimension to her as a person and as a character and everything that was just brilliantly fascinating about all of her. Brilliantly, brilliantly bonkers. <laughs> Next, we've got a slightly more serious food writer, I feel, which is um, Jane Grigson. Yes, Jane Grigson. I mean, she is, I think, one of the most revered British food writers, probably mm. of the 20th century. Um, and I think when you sort of think about classics, and I suppose we're really talking about sort of some classic food writers today, she really wrote some really truly what are regarded as classic texts in the sort of culinary canon right now. Um, a bit about her. She was born in Gloucester in 1928, um, but also sort of spent a lot of time up in Sunderland. And you sort of really get a sense of her adoring England yeah. from south to north. And she really celebrates this in kind of a lot of what she does. Um, she did all sorts of stuff. She worked in art galleries. She worked in publishing. She married a um, a poet called uh, Geoffrey Grigson. And they had a sort of gloriously loving marriage, which was split between uh, their family home in the UK and then the Loire Valley in France. And I've seen pictures of their house in the Loire Valley in France, which just looks so idyllic, the kind of place you'd want to just retire to. Just so, so beautiful. Um, she was also the cookie writer for The Observer magazine for many years. And I think what's interesting about her is that you sort of get this very informative and very sort of instructive style of writing, um, but also that has sort of history and romance and sort of culture and sort of all these other aspects kind of woven through it just really really beautifully um some of her books that i i think people would would really enjoy maybe potentially are there's a book her first ever book was actually called charcuterie and french pork cookery yeah. and it's a real i mean it's still widely regarded as sort of a definitive text on it's charcuterie. a real deep dive into the, it absolutely the techniques is. and everything yeah um she then wrote a book called english food um in 1984 which is where this sort of celebration of um of sort of England, also Scotland and Wales, she talks about a lot, uh, really sort of comes through. She's very passionately interested in rural affairs and history. Um, she was an, an early campaigner for animal welfare and was really actively against things like battery farming. Um, and actually sort of this whole idea of provenance is something yeah. that she really sort of embedded. And another thing that's really interesting is that, you know, she has this absolute reverence for France and Italy as well, which sort of comes through. But she sort of while she's very much grounded in sort of England and Britain, she's very worldly. And, yeah. you know, some of the other recipes that she has in her books are things like she has a, I think one of the first recipes for sushi that I've seen. She has a delicious curried parsnip soup yeah. um, and a Mongolian fire pot, which I've never made, but I really <laughs> want to try Jane Grigson's Mongolian fire pot. She's just a really brilliant writer and, you know, someone that um, is often very funny, quite sort of comical. I mean, one of the quotes I liked in one of her, her recipes for a salad, uh, she sort of says, chicory makes a much better winter salad than floppy lettuce from a plastic bag. It's <laughs> <laughs> so a, it's a, it's a very sort of subtle dig at the supermarkets there, which I kind of like. Yeah. But, um, anyway, <laughs> and done in the Jane Grigson way. Yeah. But yeah, and a, a brilliant writer to discover. And again, there's, um, there's so much of her writing and her recipes just have this sort of classic Britishness that I just think is just remains com completely relevant today. Yeah, lovely. Which well, I love. Definitely one for the library. I definitely haven't heard of our next writer, although the surname is very is familiar. Very familiar, yes. The next one is Samin Rushdie. Um, and she is actually the sister of Salman Rushdie. So 
I wanted to put her in because I think that she is one of those writers that not many people know about, although many people know about Madda Jaffrey. So Madda Jaffrey very much is sort of credited as bringing the, the person that, that brought Indian food to a Western audience. But there were, interestingly, other writers at the time that were also sort of talking about Indian food. And Samin um, was actually one of them. So she was born in 1948, um, as I say, as the sister to uh, Salman Rushdie. They were only born uh, a year apart. And she spent a lot of her time growing up in their family home in uh, Mumbai. But they had quite a sort of cosmopolitan life. Um, unashamedly, quite a wealthy life. And she talks about that. Um she today splits her time between New York um, and London. But what she wrote was this sort of definitive text, which has now sort of become iconic and often gets republished. Um, it's called Samin Rushdie's Indian Cookery. And it's a culinary journey through India, but also Pakistan and Bangladesh, but sort of told through her family kitchen. I, what I love about it is that there's this real sort of celebration of Indian family cooking. Um, but within that, she brings in all of the regionality of cooking across India. But not just regionality, she sort of dives into villages. And then even within villages, she dives into sort of the differences between different religious groups within those villages. So it's sort of like hyper-regionality almost, sort of almost kept telling, you know, well, this household is more likely to do this than this. So I love that you get this totally granular kind of dissection of Indian food in many ways. A lot of the things she writes about are sort of debunking stereotypes about Indian food. She quite actively sort of talks about how she didn't approve of curry houses and what they'd done for the reputation uh, of Indian food. And she wanted to kind of debunk a lot of that sort of stuff. Um, she talks a lot about flavours and textures with using spices. Um, and another thing that I think is really interesting about her is that she talks a lot about the sort of Ayurvedic use of spices and ingredients. So instead of sort of saying, you know, use this for flavor, actually, she sort of says, well, actually, these are also used for these medicinal reasons as well. And the book really dives into that sort of stuff. A couple of her recipes that I absolutely love. She has a marrow butter, which is delicious, um, a black pepper chicken, which I've cooked many times, and it just really celebrates black pepper as a kind of a, a spice on its own. Um, there's some kebabs and sour sauce, which are heaven. Um, and she actually even has a recipe for masala brain, which I've never done. <laughs> but, you know, there's a lot of... And, and that's what's interesting about it. You know, you would never sort of think to kind of um, bring kind of offal into Indian cooking. And she sort of does, because that's something that she ate around the family table. Um, you said that book was reissued in 2002. Was, so so yes. people should be able to get people a People should be able to get hold of it. Um, it has a bright pink cover with sort of stars on it. And it really is this sort of celebration of Indian cookery through her own family and kind of celebrating everything that's vast and varied about the subcontinent. So yeah, one to track down. Definitely. Now the next one, um, I've come across more because of the awards his name is linked to. Absolutely. That's James Beard. I mean, that's probably how I know the name. Yes. Yeah. Tell us about him. Yes. Yeah, so James Beard, he is sort of very much seen as kind of the godfather of American cookery. Yeah. And the awards indeed today are sort of his his legacy kind of um, playing out. So he was born in 1903 in Portland, Oregon, and had a really interesting life. He was sort of very theatrical. His mum ran a kind of bed and breakfast, and he sort of learnt to cook and to eat through watching her. But actually, there were all sorts of kind of diasporic cooks that also came through his mum's kitchens who he watched and he sort of just spent his entire childhood with. Um he spent a bit of time sort of trying to explore this sort of career in uh, in theatre, but eventually, in 1946, ended up being the very first TV chef in America. So arguably, I think the very first TV chef ever, which was on a show called I Love to Cook. Um, 
And that's where he sort of, in many ways, sort of established himself as this sort of father figure of American cooking. He published 15 books over his lifetime. And actually, what's interesting about James Beard is he's the first chef whose name became almost a brand in itself. So today, I suppose we think about people like Jamie Oliver and Gordon Ramsay, not only as chefs, but almost as these kind of empires or brands themselves. James Beard sort of set the blueprint for that. Um, And a lot of his books have got his name in the title. So (laughs) he has a book called Beard on Entertaining. Uh, He has a book called The James Beard Cookbook. Uh, And then sort of his sort of definitive tome is the James Beard American Cookery Cookbook. A few themes for him. I mean, he very much champions seasonality. Um, And he does in many ways sort of really sort of revere French and Italian cooking. But for him, he felt that Americans had their own cuisine and their own sort of produce to be proud of. And what he really wanted people to do in America was to look to France and Italy for inspiration, but actually to really celebrate American cooking um, and American produce and kind of the history sort of of that. And what I love about this is that he talks a lot about how American cuisine was very much influenced by all the cultures that sort of came into um, that came into America, and it very much being this sort of melting pot of lots of different cuisines and the greatness of all of them, which kind of made American cuisine. And I just really love the way that he sort of celebrates that throughout all of his cooking. Um, another interesting thing about him is that he's quite—he's he's a, he's a very intriguing character, and again, someone that's sort of shrouded in sort of a little bit of mystery and a little bit of. Um, of secrecy but apparently he very famously had a completely photographic memory for taste so he could remember everything he ever ate the exact date he ate it who he ate it with when and exactly what it tasted like that's that's insane (laughs) i mean it's extraordinary it's extraordinary so what's interesting therefore is that a lot of his food really plays with this idea of food and memory okay which I really love, and it, it does come it does come through a lot in his writing. And actually, this this whole idea of taste memories, which yeah, we talk yeah, about a lot course, today, yeah. I think he was one of the first people to actually to use that to, it, to, yeah. to talk about it. Some of the recipes that I love in his American Cookery Cookbook, um, he has lots of recipes for braised short ribs and kind of American beef stews, which are delicious. Um, he has three recipes for shrimp and orange salads. He loves it. <laughs> loves it, which, you know, I love a shrimp and orange salad. Well, I think I've only had one ever in my life, but he has three recipes for it. Um, he has an amazing recipe for zucchini and walnuts. Um, he has a hamburger pizza yeah, recipe. Very trendy. Very Super trendy. <laughs> very on trend. Um, and then he has some of his cakes and desserts was quite interesting. There's a lovely cake, which has a nice name, which I love, which is the Lazy Daisy cake. Oh, nice. Um, and then there's a mystery cake. Um, and the mystery is actually an entire can of Campbell's tomato soup. <laughs> God, they love whacking Campbell's soup. I have it. never tried that cake, but yeah, it's very, I mean, it's very, very That comes good. up in a lot of American recipes, doesn't it? Not, it really not, not all of America. Sorry, America, yeah. but... But you see that a lot in <laughs> casseroles with Absolutely. a kind of mushroom soup in. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'd really encourage people to yeah, sort of sure. who are familiar with his name because of the yeah. awards. And, you know, the James Beard Awards are very much the sort of the Oscars of the food world yeah. now. But I'd really encourage people to actually just sort of dive into James Beard writing itself um, because firstly, there's a lot of it and it's really, really entertaining. Um, I think you really get a sense of this sort of theatrical, larger than life character who was the world's first TV chef, sort of really being kind of this sort of bigger than larger than life personality through his writing as well. Um, It's just really joyful. And he's, you know, he's a really wonderful sort of character to discover. Great.
Next, someone who inspired a post-war generation to discover Mediterranean food, Elizabeth David. Yes, I, I love, I'm, I'm like sort of almost well up when I talk about Elizabeth David because she's just such an inspiration to, to so many people. As you say, she absolutely was that person that sort of brought an entire post-war generation sort of out of the gloom and doom and wanted to sort of enliven their plates yeah. with the joy and sunshine um, of the Mediterranean. She was a really interesting lady. She um, was born in 1913, was the daughter of a conservative MP, um, was extremely well off and therefore was very well travelled. She spent a lot of time in Greece, Italy and France. But what she really wanted to do was sort of almost share the sort of worldliness that she had and bring it to this kind of post-war generation who was very much, you know, sort of in a slump, in a bit of a depression, not really sure on how they were going to sort of get out of this sort of rationing mentality. And for her, she sort of was this kind of creative force that wanted people to I guess, re-engage with the world, but through the table. And that really, really comes through in her writing. I mean, there's sort of this lovely sort of lyrical romance to her writing. But interestingly, she also is sort of often very melancholy and she talks about the brutality of life. So, you know, she is just coming out of the war when she does sort of start to write. And she is, I suppose, in many ways respectful of that. And yeah. she sort of knows that people aren't just going to suddenly turn around and jolt back into being sort of right, in, right as rain again. Um and her, but her books have this sort of celebratory joy to them. One that I'd really encourage people to sort of discover is uh, the book of Mediterranean food, where she talks about ingredients like apricots and lemons and aubergines and olive oil and garlic and marjoram. I mean, at this time, olive oil was something you had to buy in a chemist. A chemist, yeah, for sure. <laughs> so it was really extraordinary to have someone like Elizabeth David saying, you know, you should be drenching your vegetables in this yeah. and then cooking with it. Um Another thing is that, you know, there's this real sense of kind of her being this explorer. She's adventurous. She's quite rebellious. Um, I think she had quite a few affairs in her life. Good for um, her. Well, good for her. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm very supportive of that. And actually, I think was famously sort of a bit of a sort of bossy character that often fell out with people that work with her. <laughs> but her writing has this sort of, stir, not in a sort of telling off Fanny Craddock way, a sort of stern confidence that yeah. it's lyrical and kind of joyful. Um, one sentence I just wanted to read because I just think it's so beautiful is she wrote, to eat figs off the tree in the very early morning when they have been barely touched by the sun is one of the most exquisite pleasures of the Mediterranean. Oh, wow. I just think it's lovely, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And I think I love that idea that even if people can travel to those areas, they could bring it into their own Completely. homes through her writing Completely. and her cooking. And this is, I think this is, it's that sense of sort of hope and this idea of, you know, uh, joy returning but through the table um, that I really like she also has some sort of interesting books that she wrote she wrote an entire book on spices salt and aromatics for the English kitchen yeah. which are quite amazing um, and she wrote a lot for sort of uh, lots of different publications and there are some really great um, anthologies of her work the first one is called An Omelette and a Glass of Wine and the second one is called Is There a Nutmeg in the House? <laughs> um, which again amazing titles of these anthologies but they really sort of capture the essence of yeah. what Elizabeth David was about I just find her writing always completely um, inspiring and actually often really unexpected. Yeah. Um, and that's, I think, one of these things that I sort of love about all of these writers that we're talking about today is that there is so much to discover in them. And I think food writing in some ways, we're thrown so much food content, I suppose, you know, through things like TikTok and Instagram and yeah. Twitter and, you know, all sorts of stuff that I think sort of returning to these people that were very much about food writing as a long-form yeah. discipline. And the themes that you're talking about, you know, provenance, sustainability, seasonality, you know, that people 
think they invented two years ago. They haven't. No, it wasn't invented on TikTok. (laughs) It really wasn't. No. Well, we're we're finishing up with someone who has had such an influence on both food writing and chefing in this country, but probably doesn't always get the credit he deserves. That's Simon Hopkinson. Absolutely. So, I mean, he's another chef that... um, really, really celebrates the idea of cooking as a craft and something to learn and something to really savour and do slowly. And he often talks about the fact that cooking takes time. Yes. (laughs) And it shouldn't be rushed, which I just love this idea of having a chef that's sort of really asking you to slow down. A really, really sort of inspiring chef. He started chefing at 17 um, and actually opened his first chef, which was called Hilaire, at 20. Wow. Um, he went on to be the chef at the iconic London restaurant Babendum, and he was very much a part of this sort of generation of cooks. So people like Alistair Little, Rowley Lee, Jeremy Lee, who I suppose they were sort of the pioneers of this sort of British yeah. style of eating. Um, and then you also have people like Fergus Henderson and, and Margot Henderson, who were sort of doing the nose to tail thing at the same time. It really sort of set this bar of what British cooking was. Um, and Simon Hopkinson absolutely is one of the key figures sort of within sort of that sort of group of people. Um, What's interesting is that sort of he pivoted to then being much more about food writing. Um, and what I love about his cooking, as I say, is he's all about sort of relishing in the craft of cooking. He's about good produce, ingredients, this whole idea of shopping well. There's a real simplicity to what he does, um, this whole idea of kind of enjoying the act of cooking. But what I love is that he really also wants you to kind of take joy in things that are really well loved and that have been unashamedly well loved for years. Um, The first of his books I'm going to talk about is called The Prawn Cocktail Years. Um, With this book, he dives into well-loved dishes that in some ways are kind of disregarded because they're so loved. So things like the prawn cocktail, the chicken Kiev... The Black Forest Gatto, potted shrimp, oxtail soup, all these things that he sort of says, they're kind of, in his exact words, he says, often they're flung out like old lovers <laughs> when we're sort of obsessed with kind of the pursuit yeah, the for what's things, new. Yeah. And he says, no, I want them to be reconsidered and to kind of be re- restored to the status yeah, that they and deserve. Do it properly as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So what this book is, it's a real celebration of all of those classic well-loved dishes. So jam, roly-poly, things like taramasalata, moussaka, apple strudel. I just love it. <laughs> and he really is, I suppose, one of those people that if you want a definitive recipe for something like a prawn cocktail or a black forest gato, you know, or, he is very much the person I would go to, I think. Another one of his books, which is really famous, is the Roast Chicken and Other Stories um, book, which, I mean, the title alone is, is I think, just exemplifies this idea of uncomplicated, simple cooking. I yeah. mean, roast chicken, there's nothing more simple than a roast chicken. And yet his roast chicken is sort of smeared in butter, salt, lemon and herbs. It's it's just wonderfully done. Yeah. And this sort of celebration of something that's so simple. What I love about the recipe is that actually he sort of says, at this point in most recipes, people would add a roux to sort of turn into a gravy. Yeah, yeah. And he says, stop, don't yeah. do that. Just whisk <laughs> the juices in the bottom of the pan. That's gravy enough. You don't need anything more. Yeah, I love it. I just, I totally love it. <laughs> a few other interesting things. He has an entire chapter on custard, uh, which has a lemon surprise pudding in it, which I've never made, but I'm yeah. always intrigued by Really interesting takes on potatoes. He has an olive oil mash and a saffron mash. Um, a amazing recipe for stewed rabbit with balsamic vinegar and uh, parsnip puree. And then things like a sort of salmon in pastry with currants and ginger, which is yeah. so English and so sort of so sort of British. I I think he's just someone that, again, is has these books that are sort of timeless. And yet they sort of have a sort of sense of joy and kind of properness to them yeah. that... 
it's just never going to date. Sure, I love and and you know it, it's a nice ending because a lot of the the themes in his kind of cooking go through everybody else we've talked about. You know, I think it's it's a lot to do with authenticity as yeah. well, like cooking f- for yourself and from yourself rather than trying to be something completely, completely. different. Love yeah. it. So much inspiration there, good, and lots for people to go and discover. I just want to briefly, though, because I know that you've got a new column coming up for Olive magazine. Um, I do. And it, it will be coming up pretty much around about the time this podcast out. So tell us what, you've, what you're have what you going to be doing for yes, the next few months. Yes, I'm really excited about this. So I think people might know me from sort of the inspiration recipes I do at the front, but I'm going to be expanding that into sort Yay. of a, a much sort of broader sort of sense of things that I find exciting in food, which is really wonderful. So um, there's gonna be, I'm going to sort of be mixing it up every month, I think. So I'm always going to have sort of interesting interviews with people that are sort of either sort of pioneering in food or doing something a little bit unexpected. Yeah in different parts of the country um, or with cuisines that people might not necessarily know. Um, I'm going to sort of be talking a lot about uh, some interesting culinary travel destinations that I think I'd love people to kind of discover. I'll be talking about interesting writers that I love. um, And I'm still going to be talking about lots about sort of ingredients and nifty gadgets that I might have tried out and (laughs) sort of other things that are just on my mind from a food perspective. Lots to discover there as well. (laughs) Yeah, look out for that. Um, and as always, where can people keep in touch with what you're doing outside of the yeah, magazine? Yeah, absolutely. So um, you can find me in Olive Magazine every month um, or you can follow me on Instagram. I'm at Gerd underscore loyal. Brilliant. Thanks again for coming to chat to us today, Gerd. From see you soon. Thank you for listening to the Olive Podcast. For recipes and more information, head to olivemagazine.com. Do remember to listen out for our effortless bonus episodes where our guests reveal their best cooking cheats, hacks and shortcuts. And don't forget to subscribe at iTunes, Acast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.